Well, good morning. Well, after the marriage mentoring, I, you know, I got assigned Psalm 139, and I'm thinking, well, I want to talk about marriage mentoring. My wife, Mary, she is here. Hi, honey. Just quickly, if you want to know the secret to marriage, I wear the pants in the family. And every morning she tells me which pair to put on. (laughs) Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 139. I'm entitling this message, The Greatness of the Lord. And the reason why I'm entitling it The Greatness of the Lord is because in this psalm we're going to discover that He knows everything about us. He is always with us. He can do all things for us. So let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your love. And Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice. I pray for that person who's struggling in their life. Who's experiencing overwhelming darkness, emptiness, failure. Lord, I pray that they would hear the promises that are given to us in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be open to what you want to have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 139. If you have a Bible, you might want to read along. I notice a lot of you guys have phones. You can see I'm old school. Just, just because I can't, this is a Bible. I know that it's not something you see often. You can see my Bible. I literally traded this Bible for a school bus at the Cheyenne Sioux Indian Reservation. And the guy who is the pastor of the Cheyenne Sioux Indian Reservation said, finally, we got a good deal. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. By the way, the word search there means to penetrate. In the Hebrew language, it means to penetrate in such a way that it's, it's unmistakable. Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways for there's not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before. This is a siege term. It meant to build a ramp. And so the idea here is that God has put both the limits in front of you and behind you. He goes, you comprehend my path. Verse 4, for there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, you know it all together. You've hedged me behind and before in verse 5. Laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. 
If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O Lord or God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Who wrote this psalm? Well, the text reads, for the chief musician... A psalm of David. There are some scholars who suspect that maybe David didn't write it. I believe that he really did write it. The text could mean a psalm to David or reflections about David, but I have every reason to believe that David wrote this, and I'll tell you here in just a moment. Two-thirds of the book of Psalms has titles bearing names, One is ascribed to Moses in Psalm 90. There are 73 psalms that are assigned to to David, two to Solomon, 12 to Asaph, 11 to the sons of Korah, one each to Iman and Etan, the Ezraites. Whatever else is certain, this is the original songbook that David's future famous son would sing from Jesus. And again, most of the Psalms were meant for corporate worship and singing. And this is a song that tells us about the nature and the attributes of God. And I suspect that the context of this Psalm, when David wrote it, was when he discovered that God was going to not allow David to build the temple, but rather... In David's future is going to come forth the Messiah. God's grace and mercy is going to be manifest in David's future son. It is in David's future son that sin is going to be forgiven. 
that grace is going to be imparted, that reconciliation is going to take place. And so in this psalm, the theologian reads the psalm and sees the greatness of God in three omnis, the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God. But to bring it back where the children live, Desiree, this is, this is the secret of speaking to a large group of people. Pretend like everybody's in the eighth grade. That's what I do. I'm just pretending like all of you are in the eighth grade and you don't want to hear what I have to say anyway. <laughs> the omniscience of God means he knows everything about us. The omnipresence of God means he is always with us. The omnipotence of God speaks to the fact that he can do all things for us. This isn't just a theological concept, but rather the reality that God knows everything. He is always present. He can do all things. He is great. And even though the word great appears only in verse 17, and that in the context of the thoughts that God has for you, the idea of greatness splashes over the psalm like a great wave. Or imagine you are staring up into the night and you see the stars everywhere because God's manifestation is everywhere. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, quote, how great is his mercy. There is nothing little about God. He forgives great sins to great sinners after great lengths of time. He gives great favors and gives great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God, unquote. And so the Lord is great. And knows everything about us in verses 1 through 6. The Lord is great and is always and forever with us in verses 7 through 12. The Lord is great and he can do all things for us in verses 13 through 18. And so we begin with the Lord is great. He knows all about us. Like I said earlier, oh Lord, the word here is Jehovah. It is Yahweh. It is in part his sacred name, but also it's a judicial name. When he says you have searched me, again, the idea is penetrated and know everything. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar off. David says, when I got up this morning, you were there. When I went to bed. In other words, for those of you who have, <laughs> don't quite make it through the night, you get woken up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden you realize the Lord is here. He sees you. He understands you. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. This isn't, this isn't a reference to God being far away, but rather this is a reference to you know my thought even before I think it. 
for there's not a word on my tongue, for behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You've hedged me behind and before. The idea is that you've defined the limits of my identity and the reality in which I live and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. I cannot attain it. In other words, the psalmist is saying, you've placed me here at this time under these circumstances with these people. In the ancient times, world kings and rulers would make claims that simply weren't true. And again, some scholars have argued that the context is judicial rather than theological. And the point can be conceded that David is making a judicial point without abandoning the theological reality that God is all-knowing. On my radio program, a lady called me last week and she said, does God know my thoughts even before I think them? And the answer, of course, is right here. Yes, the Lord knows what we do in verses 1 through 3. The Lord knows what we think in verse 2. The Lord knows what we say even before we say it. And so, again, the Lord is judged or he's addressed as the eternal judge who has all of the information. And this is part of what's important. He has all of the information that is necessary in order to render an accurate judgment about you. There's nothing that he doesn't know. In the Hebrew language, the verb system can be quite complex. My goal isn't for you to master Hebrew root verbs, but rather to understand that the Hebrew verb has two main ideas, that of completion or that of a continuing action. The completed action or the continuing action can take place in the past or the present or the future. And so the psalmist is basically in the most incredible way possible, trying to stretch your imagination. I want you to think of this psalm as a mold or a receptacle that you can pour your thoughts into, your emotions into, your praise and your expectation into. There are three things that only God knows, and that's the truth about the beginning of all things the cause of all things, and the end of all things. And does the fact that the Lord knows everything about you, does that comfort you or terrify you? I remember bringing this subject up at my own church and a little girl said, does he see me when I go to the bathroom? (laughs) And I said, Not only does he see you when you go to the bathroom, but he rejoices. And let me tell you why. Because he made you. He made everything about you. He's so glad that everything is working perfectly. Yeah, you laugh. And that's the right way of thinking about it. When you change that diaper when that baby comes. You mean all the plumbing is working? Yes. The Lord knows everything, public and private. Would you characterize yourself as a public person or a private person? 
Because whether you're public or private, whether you're old or young, whether you're famous or not so famous, the Lord knows everything about you. A former famous president said to me, there's just something about you that looks so familiar. I said, really? Yeah, there's just something. Has anyone ever told you that you have really nice hair? Thank you, Mr. President. The Lord is great. The Lord knows how you got here. The Lord knows why you're here. The Lord knows where you're going. And look, the Lord is great, and he's always with us in verses 7 through 12. It's important that you understand. Look what it says. Even when we feel that the Lord is far from us, let me just pause and reflect for a moment on another psalm, Psalm 34, 18. David sings, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. He saves those who have a contrite heart. When we sang earlier about the presence of of the Lord, the Lord is present whether you like it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether your heart is broken or, or rejoicing. As a matter of fact, if your heart is broken, if you feel empty, if you're overwhelmed with difficulty, that seems to be evidence not that God is far away, but that God is close. And so the psalmist writes, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And he begins to explore all of those areas where he might be able to ditch God. He says, if I ascend into heaven, no, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the ancient world, that word Sheol could mean the grave. It could also mean the permanent place of the dead. It could mean the portal. And so when he says, if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. And so he's envisioning a God. What kind of a God is in the Bible? What kind of a God is this super? supernatural God. It is a God, this God doesn't need need the presence or the absence of light in order to see everything. And so from a theological standpoint, the Lord is in fact omnipresent. That means he's everywhere at once. And so what does it mean that he is everywhere at once? It means that he's always with us. And so in this psalm, you discover the Lord is in heaven in verses 7 and 8. The Lord is in the place of the righteous dead, but the Lord is also in the place of the unrighteous dead in verse 8. For the person who is empty and dark, for the person who is hurt, for the person who thinks that their character will change at death, they are wrong. You know which state... In the United States of America leads all the other states in teen suicide? It's the state of Colorado. Do you know which county 
in the state of Colorado, which leads the entire nation in youth self-inflicted death. It's El Paso County. It's your county. It's this place. You would think that here in Colorado Springs, it's a sort of an evangelical Mecca, but yet there are people who are living in darkness and emptiness, and they're wondering what in the world they're doing here, or whether or not a God who really loves them. The Lord is in heaven. The Lord is in the place of the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead. The Lord can be found on the surface of the soil. The Lord can be found on the waves of every ocean in verses 9 and 10. The Lord shines and his presence is light even in the absence of light in verses 11 through 12. And so the passage of scripture teaches that God is everywhere present. And because that's true... There's no place that you can run from God's spirit. There's no drug that you can take. There's no alcohol that you can consume. There's no pleasure that you can embrace. There's nothing that will make the presence of God go away, even though you want the pain to go away or you want the conviction to go away. You want the reality that you're not exactly right with God to go away. And the good news is for the person who knows and loves David's future famous son, for the person who knows and loves the Lord Jesus, for the person who's experienced God's grace and mercy in the person of Jesus Christ, this is supposed to bring you comfort. The person who desires darkness to hide himself or herself, the person who's looking into the darkness is seeking a false refuge. When I was like a junior in college in 1977, there was a complete blackout in New York City. All of the electricity shut down and literally thousands of people took to the streets of New York and they began robbing and looting. There was a craze that opened up and you couldn't believe what happened and very few people experienced any kind of a persecution. There was a prosecution. There was one girl who was interviewed <laughs> and she had stolen so much stuff. This is before the time of you know portable cell phones and computer equipment. She stole jewelry and she stole clothes and she stole electronic equipment and she had so much stuff that a couple of boys offered to help her carry off the loot and then ran away with it. She gets on the, on the, on the television and she says, you know what, I had all of this stuff and, and I, they offered to help me and I gave it to them and they just took it and that's just wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, you laugh and rightly so. For a person whose moral compass is so disconnected, there are people who think that darkness will hide their deeds. But God is inescapable. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the famous French mathematician and, and philosopher said, quote, his center is everywhere. His circumference is nowhere. The presence of the Lord is meant, again, to bring comfort. In Romans 8.35, Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of God? 
or for the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or darkness or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're accounted like sheep to the slaughter. Yet in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus the Lord unquote but for many people they think that there is one thing that can separate them from God's love pain sometimes pain becomes the loudest voice The pain is so loud that you can't hear anything else. But even then, the Lord hears and understands. The Lord has two thrones. One is in the highest heavens, and the second is in the lowest heart. And because you've made Jesus the king... On the throne of your heart, he'll share that throne in heaven. There is a throne in heaven, and he has a throne on the earth. We used to sing when I was much younger Draw me nearer, Holy Spirit. A.W. Tozier wrote, We're not thinking of the nearness of the place but of the nearness of the relationship, for it's in the increasing degrees of awareness we pray for a more perfect consciousness of the divine presence. That's exactly what you were praying and singing this morning in the worship service. A.W. Tozier writes, quote, we need never shout across the spaces to an absent God. He's nearer than our soul. He's closer than our most secret thought. For the person who says, Lord, where are you? I'm right here. Lord, what are you thinking? Why, I'm thinking about you. The Lord is great because he can do all things for us. In verses 13 through 18, remember Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And David is now going to quit quickly shift from the subject of God's omnipresence now to his power and skill. And if you look at verse 13, look what it says. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. You've probably had a lot of Bible teachers draw attention to a word or a phrase. I'm going to ask you to look at the period at the end of verse 13. Wow. That's pretty small. But do you realize that a fertilized human egg is just a little bit smaller than that period that's at the end of the sentence that's there in your Bible? Look long and hard at that period. It used to be you, only much smaller. Do you see it? Look at it. David says, 
in my mother's womb. Your mother's egg was smaller. Your entire DNA was programmed and placed in order to produce you. Look what it says in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was fabricated. Constructed is the Hebrew word. Made in secret. But it's a kind of construction and fabrication that speaks of skill. Because skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, he writes, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And look what it says. In your book, they all were written. What? God has a book about you. And everything about you that was fabricated before the foundation of the world. He knew where you would be born and why you would be born and the circumstances of your birth. In verse 17 he says, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand when I awoke or rather, when I awake, I am still with you. David understands that God created us. He arranges the physical presence of us in our mother's womb. Did David know that one day human beings would be able to create life outside of the womb? I don't think so. The womb was created by God to be the place normally to house and mature human babies. If you're a test tube baby and you're here today, (laughs) good. You're not any less real or any less human. This passage of scripture is often cited in order for us to understand that pre-born babies are human babies. In short, David writes, the Lord creates and arranges our body within the womb and knows of our existence even before we're born in verses 13 through 15. The Lord orders and schedules and then records each day in our lives before we're born, verse 16. The Lord thinks about us, listen carefully, all the time. His thoughts are innumerable and constant. This last Valentine's Day, maybe someone special to you said, oh, I was just thinking about you. And you were thinking, I was thinking about you as well. But do you realize that God is always thinking about you? There's never a moment, there's never a moment, there's never a moment that he doesn't think about you. And so if you cry out to God, say, what are you thinking? And the Lord can honestly and rightly say, why, I was thinking about you. On my radio program, I had the privilege of interviewing a bunch of Billy Graham's grandchildren. And they wrote an homage, a dedication to their very famous grandfather. And one of the girls, one of the Chavigian girls said, I was talking to Papa Billy, that's what she called her grandpa. And she said, my Papa Billy said to me, you're my favorite. 
And I thought it was true until I checked with all of my cousins and he said to each one of them, you're my favorite. And I laughed because I knew it was true. I knew he wasn't lying to any one of them. How is it possible for you to be a grandma or a grandpa and to say to all of your grandchildren, why I love you best and yet it is true in each and every case? That's the kind of God that you have. You have the kind of God who says, I love you so much and I think about you so often. And by the way, the moment that you, your thoughts begin to turn to the Lord, you're both thinking about the same thing at the same time. And so David understands This is one of the most quoted scriptures to advocate and proclaim the sanctity of life and the value of what it means to be a preborn. And yet the text is rarely quoted to proclaim the fact that in God's character, God's character goes into the creation of every single human being. I understand a couple of weeks back you guys had Nick Vujacic on here. Did he tell you that uh, a lady asked him one day, Well, how do you explain how you were born with no hands and no legs? And Nick Vujacic said that he suspected that Jesus made it possible for him to be born without arms and legs so that he could be a better witness, so that he could proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. You often don't think of it, but guess what? God has made you exactly the way that he has made you. Not so that you could be less of a witness, but so that you could reflect his character and tell his story. The only difference between you then and you now is time and nutrition and location. Yeah, I can see a lot of ladies out here with baby bumps. Thank God. Thank God that you're obeying the scriptures. Be fruitful and multiply. Guess what? God isn't finished. And and the language is poetic and compelling. Notice the language of the child. David says, my substance, verse 16. Me, verse 17. I, 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 in verse 18. And in verse 18, look at that strange expression. When I awake, I am still with you. What in the world does that mean? It could mean that the psalmist is making reference to his birth. In the preceding verse, the psalmist has been emphasizing the Lord's proximity and intimacy and presence. The Lord is close to him, even in his mother's womb. But even in the birth of of David, the Lord is his sustainer. The Lord is his protector. The Lord is his guide. And so he speaks of his birth as an awakening. Just like when you use that expression, I saw the light. Some of you are children of the 80s. I saw the light. I opened up my eyes. And yeah, some of you remember. This is what that means. It occurred to me, I now understand. And the answer of God's thoughts towards you, infinite thoughts, eternal thoughts, 
When you wake up in the morning, God is thinking about you. When you go to brush your teeth or fail to brush your teeth, he's thinking about you. His thoughts about you in no way interfere with his love or his plan or his promises. And I wonder what might change. I wonder what might change in the hearts of individuals if they could understand and really believe God's thinking about me right at this very moment. Not just understanding who I am, but thinking about you in love, thinking about you with interest. C.S. Lewis wrote, God's power means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. In other words, Lewis is making the statement, can God do anything? Well, God can't do the absurd. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. When I was a kid growing up, I I, I remember the priest, I thought I was going to be the most smartest 11-year-old in catechism. And I said, our priest was from Limerick, Ireland. He goes, you have a question for me, Mr. Geraci? Yes, I do. Can God make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? Well, now, Mr. Tracy, that's quite the smart question, don't you think? The real answer to your question, is God so stupid that he would make a rock that big that even he couldn't lift it? And the answer, Mr. Tracy, is no. God isn't interested in absurdities. C.S. Lewis said, quote, This is no limit to his power. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things but non-entities. In other words, this fabricated rock doesn't really exist. Blaise Pascal said, quote, The greatest single distinguishing feature of the omnipotence or all-powerfulness of God is that our imagination gets lost. When we think about it, unquote. No wonder David earlier said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. For the last close to 20 years, I've been answering Bible questions on the radio. And people say, have you ever been asked a question that you don't know the answer to? The answer is yes. There's lots of questions that I've been asked that I don't know the answer to. But that doesn't mean there's no answer. Whatever the answer is, God can, in fact, be the answer. Alexander McLaren told his congregation, quote, if God sends us on stony paths, he will provide for us strong shoes, whatever it is that God's asking you to do, wherever it is that God's asking you to go, whatever it is that God has called you uniquely and specifically to accomplish, he's going to make a provision for you. And the Lord is great and he can test us. Look what it says. I'm putting my hand on because I can see it's 10.08, which means I only have two minutes. Okay. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. 
The psalmist's meditations on God cause him to make two requests. The first request, destroy the wicked in verses 19 through 22. The second is an invitation to test him and point out anything in his life that God might find offensive and the hatred that God had for his enemies, the the, the hatred that David had for God's enemies were rooted and grounded in his love for the Lord. We live in a culture and a society that has distanced itself from the word hate. But guess what? There is a biblical way of hating what's wrong. Some people will say, do we have a right to be angry with or hate the people who hate God? Go to gotquestions.org, type in that question. No, I'm just kidding, I'll tell you. I'll tell you right now. It all depends on what you mean by that. We're told to love our enemies, to bless those who curse us, and pray for those who despitefully use us. And guess what? We have to remember that God has entrusted all judgment to Jesus Christ. And so, guess what? It's okay to care about what God cares about. Edward J. Young says, quote, Before we proceed to condemn David for this prayer, it would, we would do well to note that we ourselves pray for the same thing whenever we pray the words of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If you've ever prayed the prayer, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, you are in effect praying that the coming of Christ's kingdom is going to be preceded by the destruction of his enemies. David invites the Lord to search his heart and mind, to expose any wrong motives that might be informing David's strong words. Do you seek justice against evil? Well, guess what? God has dealt with you not in justice, but in mercy. One translation reads, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. Know my thoughts. Point out anything that's offensive to you. And so what is the psalmist doing? He's inviting the Lord of heaven to to exploratory surgery, to crack his skull and examine his heart. He is inviting the Lord to do a deep dive into what's motivating him. But he's doing it, remember, in the context that God already knows everything, that there's nowhere that you can hide from him, that there's nothing that he can't do. That includes taking your life, even if it's less than perfect, taking your broken life, taking your inconsistent life, taking your troubled life, taking it and then making it right. It was Thomas Aquinas who said, a man's heart is right when he wills to do what God wills. William MacDonald says, quote, it's not the challenge of a person protesting his innocence or righteousness. Rather, it's the confession of one who's been in the presence of the Lord and is convicted of his own sinfulness. He realizes that he is not cognizant or aware of all of his iniquity and he wants the Lord to point them out so they can be dealt with effectively. And that's exactly what you can do. 
the moment that you confess your sin, forsake your sin, and then follow Jesus. It was William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, who wrote, quote, the greatness of man's power is in the measure of his surrender. And so David, David, David begins to understand that greatness for the shepherd is to become little and then to become less and then to become nothing because David's future son will be everything. Thanks for letting me share with you. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women. I pray, Lord, that as we go back and we think about this psalm and read it again and again, that, Lord, you'll help us. You'll help us. You'll expose the things that aren't exactly right. And then you'll motivate us to get rid of it for Jesus' sake. In Jesus' name. Amen.